Hi, this is Tom Schultz, and you're listening to Iron City Rocks. This is John Wetton from Asia. You're listening to Iron City Rocks. Hey, everyone, this is James Labrie, and you're listening to Iron City Rocks. Welcome to episode 315 of the Iron City Rocks podcast. I'm your host, John, coming to you from the Iron City of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, bringing the best rock, hard rock, heavy metal, and blues talk on the net. Episode 315, we are joined by prog rock guitarist, uh, kind of a legendary guitarist, especially when you think of the, the bands with uh, kind of that dual lead guitar. We're joined by Andy Powell of Wishbone Ash. Wishbone Ash just started a tour that's taking them all across the United States. They're going to be coming into uh, the Pittsburgh market on the 20th of September to do a show at the Rex Theater. Um, I know a lot of people uh, really enjoy their music. I've got a great following in the U.S., so I want to see a great crowd when they come into Pittsburgh. So um, I know they're not a band that, uh, in my experience, has gotten a lot of terrestrial radio play, at least in, in the Pittsburgh market. So I uh, wanted to give you all a chance to learn a little bit more about the band, hear some of the music, uh, and get you excited for the show. So we play just a little taste of Wishbone Ash. And I get in the interview with Andy Powell. joining us on the line, Andy Powell. How are you doing, Andy? Hey, John. I'm doing well, thank you. It's a pleasure to talk to you, a guitarist I've admired for, for many, many years. Um, one of the things I've always kind of been curious about with Wishbone Ash was um, where did that kind of dual harmony kind of stem from? Was there particular players growing up that you kind of listened to that kind of drove you to that, or was that something you guys just kind of did in the early days messing around? Well, I mean, there was there were a couple of bands. Um, one band in Britain called the Blossom Toes, and they dabbled with guitar harmonies. And um, I've always cited them as probably the first thing, time that 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 concept you know, pricked my ears. But mm-hmm. the the guitar player for reference in that band was Jim Cregan, who later went on to play with uh, Rod Stewart. Okay, and they were a kind of pretty inventive psychedelic band around sixty. And then um, I was fortunate enough to have been at Fleetwood Mac's first inaugural gig in 67 
Um, they were, they may have been dabbling with the twin lead thing, but very basically. But I would say the main impetus for me with twin lead was I was always m melody driven, and uh, I played in soul, what we called in Britain soul bands. You probably call them R and B acts. Okay. Uh, we we played, uh, you know, so there were eight piece bands with horns. And we played um, hits from the day, Tamil Motown specifically, and Stax and all that kind of material that was coming over from America. And the merchant seamen were bringing all these uh, records over, the 45s on the ships, and they would typically be distributed from the ports, you know, Liverpool, Southampton, whatever. And we would, and we would also play the American air bases, so we would get to hear this kind of music, and that's what we wanted to be playing. So those bands had horns, and you know you're always like working out horn lines with horn players. Mm -hmm. um, and you know I developed a really good ear, like just just working with these horn players. And so when we formed Wishbone Ash, the idea was <clears throat> specifically from my end of things was to you know come up with guitar lines that were really punctuating the music like horn lines. Really, I mean Keith Richards did this with Satisfaction. I mm -hmm. mean the guitar part in Satisfaction was is really a horn line that he intended but never they never recorded it so he played it on a fuzz guitar well with us we used a two two lead guitar players one of the first songs we ever wrote uh within that idiom was blind eye and it's like if you listen to that song it's got a punctuated little riff that staccato riff it's, it's just a horn riff you know and um you know we'd also been through the late 60s we've been through three or four years of with incredible players in britain like beck clapton peter green it's like, well, how can you top that? Right. You can't top yep. that. So you better get smart and think of something fresh. And what we came up with was the twin lead guitar sound. Now, was the driving force in that band, you mentioned R&B, and a lot of the players you just mentioned, you know, the British players who, you know, seem to tip their hat to American blues, was was blues at the forefront of what you're listening to, or was R&B more of a, a strong driver in your style? I'd say the R&B... Um, Tamla urban thing was an influence in the early 60s as it was on bands like The Action, the High Numbers that later became The Who, Zoot Money, all these bands, Spence Davis Group. That was like the 63, 64, 65, and then it became very specifically blues. In 66, you had the British blues boom. And don't forget, a lot of American artists couldn't get arrested in America, but they were coming over and doing sessions in London. I mean, Howlin' Wolf, um, you know, I mean, a lot of these people, you know, Sonny, Terry, Brownie, McGee, all these players were coming over to Britain. And so, you know, that's a small country. So they, they created a big buzz. And it was really something exotic to hear American bluesmen with their bands, you know, mm -hmm. Hubert Thumlin, people like that, you know, in Britain, you know, which was this kind of starchy, establishment-driven country, you know, post-war... And then suddenly all the kids in the art colleges and the art schools are catching up and picking up on American Blues. So there was this boom, and that spawned the, the John Mayall band, it spawned the Fleetwood Mac, it spawned Chicken Shack, I mean, many, many blues bands in Britain. I mean, the same thing was going on here with Mike Bloomfield and people, but, you know, because America was such a bigger country, the impact w was more diffuse. Yeah? Certainly. <coughs> yeah. So, you know, that was the climate, and... See, that period of time, you know, mid-60s through to when we really got got our wheels in traction, 
you had the blues boom, then you had uh, psychedelia. You know, the drug thing came in, it impacted the music. The Beatles came out with Sgt. Peppers. There was Cream. There was this. Everything became quite really extended. And I th as far as rock and popular music, that was an incredibly explosive, creative period. You know, the mid '60s to the early '70s, and we just rode in on that wave with our band. And we had a an American manager at the time, and we signed to a U.S. label, Decca. Mm -hmm. And so all of a sudden, we were we were flying across the Atlantic, and we were playing in the States. We were also playing in Europe. And we were, you know, we, we were riding that wave, you know. Right. Now, how difficult w when the flavor of the U.S. music scene changed, obviously, in the, in the early 80s to more electronic music, was that a, a d difficult time particularly for you guys? Well, <clears throat> I think as a band, it, 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 it left us wondering. I mean, a lot of bands at that time were, were you know, that were formed in the 70s were wondering, well, how do we, how do we approach this? Because... Mm -hmm. You had um, a lot of stuff in Britain at that time, Scrutiny, Polity, The Fix, you had Nick Kershaw, you had the, the birth of the CD, and you had um, synthesizers just went rampant for a couple of years. Absolutely. And Yeah, but you know, on a personal level, I was actually enjoying that material, and that, that change, and <clears throat> I was very intrigued by it. Mm -hmm. you know, the, the, the fidelity and the, the high-end recording, digital recording became the thing. And so I, I didn't mind, you know, um, as far as the band's career, we were kind of immune from it because we had moved in the late 70s over here and we okay. were living in this kind of bucolic existence in the Connecticut countryside and we were recording albums at home, um, which, you know, presaged what people do these days. We had a country, a country house and we mm -hmm. constructed a studio. So we were pretty, you know, we could... We knew there was a punk scene in New York. We knew, but you know, I mean, we were going out on tour sporadically, but we toured with acts like Aerosmith or maybe ZZ Top. And, um, <clears throat> you know, we would play, we'd go out to Detroit, we'd have Bruce Springsteen opening for us. And mm -hmm. I think everybody was trying to figure out their direction. Sure. But, you know, in, the, in New York and London, there was, you know, there was New Age, there was, there was uh, you know, all of this electronic music. And, um, and, and, and uh, you know, I think a lot of people just took a deep breath and just sat back and saw what was a younger generation. Let's see what they did. Mm. And, you know, they, uh, I mean, some of that stuff I go back and there's not that much of it that stands up, actually, that hold, holds your attention. But there there was some good some good material came out of that period, I have to say. But um, in, in, the, in the long run, you know, it, it meant that we worked less, but we thought, we spent more time in the studio and we'd already kind of had our moment in the sun so we had something to fall back on you know right. we had a you know a kind of um, a little bit of security yeah and sometimes you know not chasing the fads you know may pay dividends in the long run you know I mean, well we were older by then and yeah. we were all individually starting families we were looking at you know life we hadn't lived any personal life in ten right. years. We've been on the road. I mean, sure. we were work like we were work like dogs. I mean, yeah, know, we yeah. had no. And so that was a time of um, of just uh, you know digging in and uh, learning what life was about and, sure. and making music as well. You know, it was a more mature approach to all. Yeah. Now, how how's the band approach? I mean, you guys had a uh, Blue Horizon in 2014. Um, is creating new music still something you guys kind of 
strive to do or is it kind of you filling time between tour dates you know as a lot of bands do with new music it's just kind of something they do because i guess technically you should have a new album out but it's not very financially viable so it's not a priority i think with a lot of bands how, how do you guys kind of well, I don't, I don't think this. I, I think um, it's a good question. I, I think we're in a really strange period of game right now. Where I mean, I read a statistic the other day that it was a number one album in on Billboard, and they said I think they said the total number of hard units, hard copy units sold was fifty four thousand uh, yeah. discs, and um, and then of course the artists or everything's being downloaded, and the artists are not making any money. Mm-hmm. from it so the incentive you know the patronization of art and music by record labels and the music industry quote unquote it's just not there anymore but that I mean on a personal level I mean and as a band I think we we have a need to make music so the 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 conundrum is how are we going to move forward now into this phase and you know, don't forget this band's been together nearly 50 years so in one shape or form or another we have always moved through these phases like the one you right. just mentioned with synthesizers so we'll figure it out but I don't think on, a, on you know uh, the, the need to make music is, is always there it's just a question of how you function in the quote unquote music business and how you can you know where, where you put your energies and how you do it I mean the mm. last album <coughs> excuse me the last album that we did we have access to a kind of a, a studio facility in England, which does not cost anywhere near what it used to cost to produce a rock production. I mean, you, right. you probably remember the days of bands and budgets, and we were we were the same. I mean, we spent literally hundreds of thousands of dollars on a recording. Well, now um, it's down to twenty five, thirty thousand, and now even less. You know, you're talking twelve, fifteen. Well, you know, it's it's hard to sort of keep that to, to kind of figure out how you can get a rock attitude across with only spending right. small amounts of money. So I think we've had a fantastically creative period. The last, I would say, the last eight or ten years, we've produced a lot of what they call used to call in the record business product, mm-hmm. and and people, and it's certainly really nurtured and been invested with our fans and they really appreciate it and the fan community we've got through the use of the internet is really solidly behind us but i don't think it's any bad thing that we just take a bit of a deep breath and in that regard we're we're calling this tour of the united states to take it back to us so we're digging back into the catalog we're bringing out some old chestnuts because we have a vast catalog so it's nice to actually before you produce another album to just maybe revisit what you are and what you are is always changing as you move forward um in in being reflected in the current zeitgeist you're always you you know i find i look back on my past and i and i constantly reevaluate it and in terms of how it how it reflects back in today's world you know right um yeah so you certainly got you know, plenty of material, and that's, you know, I'm sure, you know, a lot of the hardcore fans probably enjoy it when you mix up set lists as opposed to, you know, bands that come to town and play the same 13 songs year after year after year. You know, you hear that a <laughs> lot. Yeah, we don't do that. We we do mix it up. I mean, I'm sure there are chestnuts there that people want to hear. They want to hear the songs that mm-hmm. first kept, caught their ears. But, right. you know, we, we have a deep, you know, we, 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 and, you know, we look at material in a way where, hey, you know, that's a really good guitar workout, that song. Or 
the, this song is really a nice ballad or, or, or whatever, you know. Right. Now, um, set-wise, I mean, when you, when you come into Pittsburgh, um, you come in September 20th to the Rex Theater. Um, do you guys, how long of a, of a show do you guys intend to do, time-wise? Typically a couple of hours, you know. Okay. We, you know, we want to give a good value for money. We're not going to go up to three hours, um, right. although sometimes we do certain theaters. We might do a couple of sets and do two mm-hmm. and a half hours, but it's something like that. It depends on what the situation is, really. Sure. Well, Andy, I, I want to tell you, I know Pittsburgh very much looks forward to seeing you guys coming in. Uh, you're going to be at the Rex, which is a you know great location right uh, right in the south side, close to the heart of the city, and hopefully we have a great turnout for you guys, and I uh, wish you guys all the best. Well, we hope so. We, we are, I have full memories of Pittsburgh and been there many times, and um, it's not too far down the road from where I live now, which is in, up in Connecticut. So, yeah, not too know, bad. Anymore. We're on the east coast. We're, you know, we're <laughs> I can relate. <laughs> yeah, and we're, I mean, the weather should still be decent in September for travel, so it'll be a, it be nice. a safe one. All right, Andy, all the best, and uh, we'll see you when you get into the Berg. Much appreciated, John. Right. Look forward to it. Bye-bye. Yeah. Thank you to Andy Powell of Wishbone Ash for coming on the show. Again, the show in Pittsburgh, September 20th, Rex Theater. Tickets available uh, if you go to Elko Concerts. Uh, you can get tickets for, I believe, $26, $30, somewhere in that ballpark. Um, so a very affordable night. A great uh, band going to be doing a ton of classics. As Andy mentioned, they've got a, enough to do many, many kinds of set lists. So don't expect the same show you always see from some bands. Uh, Wishbone Ash certainly be mixing it up quite a bit. Um, Really enjoyed uh, myself learning a little bit more about the band. Um, really impressed with the dual guitar stuff uh, that they do. Um, had a chance not all that long ago to do an interview with uh, Damon Johnson, who is a guitarist of Blackstone Riders, um, and also the um, band Thin Lizzy. Uh, about that dual guitar, you know, that Iron Maiden, Thin Lizzy, uh, Judas Priest. Uh, not a lot of bands that do it that well, though. So uh, Wishbone Ash certainly won that... Um, stands out in that arena so hope you enjoy the show you can find out more about us at ironcityrocks.com facebook twitter instagram youtube are all forward slash iron city rocks invite you to check out us follow us like us whatever it is you do on those pages you can always contact us at ironcityrocks at gmail.com or if you go to ironcityrocks.com there's a contact link uh tell us what you like about the show what you hate about the show Suggest a band that maybe we we haven't had on. We've had literally hundreds of guests on the show at this point, um, but maybe there's a band out there that you you know you've always loved or you've always been curious about. You'd like to see on the show. Send us a note. We love suggestions. So um, until next time, we want to thank you very much for listening because without you guys, not worth doing it. Until next time, thank you. <laughs>